it's the biggest gift we give to technology companies that our regulators are perpetually three, four, five years behind. Why do companies do this? Why do they make it so hard to repair devices? Repair devices. Repair devices. Repair devices. Hey listeners, I'm your co-host, C.A. Jean-Louis. I'm Shwani Johnson. And I'm Kayla Lawless. Welcome to Big Tech, Big Law, a podcast where law and technology meet. We hope you learn a lot by listening to our episodes, and we hope to learn a lot too. To get started, we'll introduce ourselves, and then we'll dive into the discussion. I'm C.A. Jean-Louis, and I'm a second year at Howard Law. I'm from Brooklyn, New York, and I love talking about the law and technology, and that's all I got. I'm Shawani. I am a recent graduate from the University of Oregon School of Law in Oregon. I'm originally from Hawaii. I am really interested in technical law, mostly privacy and cybersecurity. When I'm not studying for the bar like I am right now, I'm hanging out with my dog. And I'm Kayla. I'm a 2L at University of Miami School of Law. I'm from New York and I am interested in technology law as well. I'm hoping to learn more about privacy law. I think that this will be a great place to start. Now you know who we are. Before we begin, I will outline our show's format. We begin with an intro to our topic, which usually will be a hopefully interesting development in the IP and tech legal space. Then we enter our segment titled Lean Not, where we dive deeper into discussing different aspects of the development with guests familiar with or working in that space. For instance, some of the tech-heavy topics we explore can get pretty complex, so for those episodes, we will have someone familiar with or working in the tech space come on to help us all digest some of those very technical concepts. Since we focus on big tech, we also explore the corporate strategy end of things with a guest familiar with business administration. Last but not least, we discuss other legal cases similar to the issue and potential litigation in the area or public policy developments with a guest familiar with or working in the legal or tech policy field. So without further ado, let's discuss right to repair. What is the right to repair and how big is the right to repair movement? We should be free to fix our own stuff, but companies use their power to make it difficult to repair. Right to repair laws would guarantee consumers and small businesses access to the tools, the parts, the schematics, and the diagnostics necessary for repair. That was Nathan Proctor with the United States Public Interest Research Group. Uh, Kayla, pretend you drop your phone and the screen shatters, what would you do? Um, I would make an appointment for the Genius Bar and go into Apple as soon as I could. It seems like really the only option here. Right. So to your point, most times if you buy a product like a cell phone or a laptop, when something is wrong with it, the choices are limited if the product is not covered by warranty. Your only choices are to either pay to have the product fixed by the manufacturer or authorized service retailer, or to trade it in and buy a new product. The United States Public Interest Research Group advocates to introduce laws that would give American consumers an alternative to manufacturers' services when something you bought breaks. Okay, so what does that look like? So, compared to right now, if you break your phone, if 
it's under warranty, the manufacturer is agreeing to fix it or place it for free during the time it's under warranty. However, another option is insurance coverage. So you can file a claim with some company and they'll fix it or send you a refurbished replacement. Either way, you're supposed to go to the manufacturer directly or to a certified repair provider. It would just be cheaper if you could do it yourself. However, it's practically impossible to do that because the parts, like a new screen, aren't available online. So under right to repair, it gives consumers or users more choices. I buy a sneaker, shoelace breaks, I buy a new shoelace, replace the broken one. I don't really see what the issue is. The consumer side of the argument is pretty obvious. People want to be able to have more control over what they are able to do. Anyone feel like playing devil's advocate here for the corporation side? I would go ahead and say the only things are the liability and safety issues from the corporation. Now, if someone goes and makes a mistake and doesn't fix something correctly, are the corporations responsible for that or is the consumer? Yeah, that's an interesting point. I would say that once I buy something, I own it, right? And restricting people from even having the option, an option to get a new battery pretty easily. That takes the choice away, and I think that kind of control over someone who already has purchased the device from the company, I think they should have an option to do what they can with the product that is now under their possession. On the issue of safety, depending on the product that you're talking about, say a cell phone, the safety issue to the purchaser, to the person making the repair, the risks are small. But the bigger the thing is, say a tractor or a car, the more likely that person is to get hurt. Like Kayla was talking about, the risks to the manufacturer or the retailer are greater the more complex or large the piece of machinery or technology is. Right. Um, You know that saying where... You know, maybe you're talking to a parent or or someone older and they say they don't make them like they used to. I think that's what they're referring to because you have a product that uh, maybe back in the day used to last your entire lifetime. Now, um, iPhones or any other product could have a pretty high turnover rate. You know, the fact that the design is different. Instead of plastic or silicon, now the screens are made out of glass, right? So that's going to create a higher probability of the product being damaged in some way. Apple in particular has a pretty aggressive strategy. They release new and more interesting products pretty much on the dot every year. You can't have too many products in the ecosystem. And I think this is something that our next guest, who is a lot more educated on the business side of things can speak to and we will have him introduced by Siri. Here today to discuss business strategy is our guest Dr. Matthew C. Mitchell. Dr. Mitchell is a self-described pilgrim, someone who is constantly exploring the world for new insights to impact the diverse communities he serves. Dr. Mitchell started his career as a physicist and programmer in the telecom industry building the back-end infrastructure and mobile operating systems that help power today's digital marketplace. 
Dr. Mitchell earned his MBA with honors from the Crummer School of Business in 2004 and earned his PhD in Business Administration from the University of South Carolina, is currently an Associate Professor of International Business and Strategy at Drake University and a founding partner of Batten Global LLC, a strategy and research advisory firm. Dr. Mitchell is also a regular commentator on issues such as innovation, disruption, firm strategy and globalization. Welcome to the Big Tech Big Law Podcast, Dr. Matthew C. Mitchell. Greetings. Hey, um, Shawani. Hello, Kayla. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Dude. Oh. <laughs> it's been a while. Give me, give me the haps. Like, give me a 30-second update on, on where you're at and what, like, how you're conquering your corner of the world. Uh, yeah, I got to see you in Des Moines because it's a long All right. story. All right. All right. <laughs> okay. uh, um, so let's talk about right to repair. Uh, I worked in tech for many years. I, I was part of a team that I think created the first smartphone in the entire world. Um, it was in London. It was a joint venture between Sony, Nokia, Motorola, and Ericsson. So I, I've been around these. Yeah, what voice do you want me to bring to the conversation? I honestly think your background is perfect for this particular episode. And yeah. because, like you said, you have that initial background in tech, but your focus is business strategy. And essentially today we want to discuss why do companies do this? You know, why do they make it so hard to repair devices? Like if you want to change the tire on your car, you take out a tire iron, the lug nuts, you swap it out. If it's a Jeep, your spare tire is in the back. But if you want to change the screen on an iPhone, you can't do that at home. You got to take it to iFixit. They got to get a hot glue gun or a <laughs> hair dryer. And it's really complex. And you need yeah. special tools. Some of them are not even available to buy. It's not like a yeah. hexagonal uh, wrench. Sometimes they have more than six oh, corners. Yeah. They have what you call security screws. You can't take them out normally. You have to go to a special company. Things like that. Why do they make it hard for consumers to repair their own devices? Why do they limit experts who can repair them if they had the tools to? Why do they not provide them with official parts to actually get it done? And I'm not just talking about iPhone. Tesla does this, you know, not to name drop companies or speak badly, but it's just the reality, right? It's just the reality that they have their cards really close to their chest. They just don't want you yeah. to, to see what's under the hood. What's the perspective of cell phone companies, of high-tech devices? It's You've got this dimension of control and open source. So let's just say you had an open source device. It's a very maker-oriented device. Google's Project Era comes to mind. It's this sort of modular phone that you can ridiculously easy to repair and build. It's sort of a, a funky little maker community there. But then on the other side, you've got a company like Apple that wants to control the experience of their users. And, and they say, we know our users better than anyone. And let's just say, let's get really out there and, and throw it on the gauntlet and say, Apple thinks they know their users better than that they know themselves. And, and I always use this example, and it's this idea of the lightning connector in the bottom of a phone of an Apple phone. Apple chose to remove the eighth inch input device probably about a year or two before customers were really ready for removing that eighth inch audio input. And they pissed off a lot of people. Why did they do that? Well, for two reasons. Number one, they knew they could create a better experience by removing that eighth inch plug. 
They had control over the experience to go to an envisioned better experience through a fully wireless delivery of, of sound. Probably that's a better experience. They retained that control. But guess what, guys? They also had the ability to sell these $200 a pop little AirPod things that created a, a completely different business model. And so, yes, they did know the trajectory of the user experience. Yes, they did want to retain control. Yes, they also had the, the profit motive to redefine the business model for them. And um, who benefits? You know, some would say the vast majority of Apple customers did benefit from a better experience without tangled wires. Some would say the, the company also benefits because they created above average sustainable rents by creating demand for a new device. And then guess what? They also sell these groovy little things that I absolutely hate, but I love the word. It's a, a dongle. We, we need a dongle. I got a dongle for that. Are you kidding me? They charge 20 bucks for these things that probably cost a buck 50 to, to produce. So yes, I think they're there's a right to repair. But when we when we look at the whole issue, I, I think it's on this dimensionality of of control from the companies, of ceding control to the users. But probably some of the users, when we open up the right to repair, may also perceive that the experience is sacrificed a little bit, possibly. I don't think we have a, an awareness of that yet because a lot of companies do retain that control. But that's that's at least a little bit about how I think about this right to repair this right to control, and, and the right to innovate on a business model um, for the companies as well. Yeah, and I would add just on the point that companies like Apple think they know the user better than the user knows themselves. I would I would even add that they are trying to create the user, to fashion the user. I don't even recall what we used before the Lightning connector. I certainly remember the aux port being in most of the devices because I'm still kind of upset about them removing that <laughs> and need, needing a dongle every time I hop into my car. Once they change it, if you're a fanboy or fangirl or just a loyal customer of Apple, you can't really do anything. You just kind of got to go with the flow. Whatever they release, you just you're, accept it. Jean-Louis, you're seeding. I mean, if you buy into, let's just say, an Android ecosystem or an Apple ecosystem, you're seeding your trust and your experience in the future. You're seeding that to this company. You're investing in trust for not just the life span of your device. But Jean-Louis, to your point, Apple are fantastic educators. They've mapped our journey for many years into the future and they know the products that we will buy. And they may not know each individual preference, but gosh, you better bet a whole bunch of money that they know in aggregate what their customers experience. And Amazon the same way, with great power comes great responsibility because they can predict our future behaviors. They can also, to your point, shape those future behaviors. And they do. I would say, you know, Jean-Louis and Kaylin Schwani, you know, I have the opportunity to work with young people in, in undergrad, but also graduate students and executives. Our undergrads, I think, you know, 18 to 22 have seeded that trust unquestioningly. They know it. They're aware of it. They're not too pissed about it. And they're just, you know, they're OK with that. Dr. Mitchell, you touch on something that I think is really interesting and also takes me back to Kayla's question about the youth potentially having seeded that trust versus an older demographic being more skeptical and wanting to have more control versus the control lying with the manufacturer or the retailer like Apple, which in this case is both. 
You have legislation that's been introduced, that is being introduced all across the country that is in a lot of times failing to pass the state legislatures. For example, here in Oregon, where I am, we had a bill in 2019 that didn't pass the House and we just had another bill that didn't pass the House. And I think that there's a disconnect. Most of our state representatives are a little bit older. They have that skepticism. And potentially there's a lack of understanding about certain more technical aspects <laughs> of the technology that we're using every day. So you have this really interesting interplay between a highly technical manufacturer, the use that has seeded trust, and then our state and sometimes federal representatives who are more skeptical and perhaps don't have that knowledge. I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. It's the biggest gift we give to technology companies that our regulators and legislators are perpetually three, four, five years behind in, in <laughs> understanding the implications of, of this technology, right? And listen, I worked for technology companies. I'm sort of a, a technological determinist. I'm a recovering physicist. I'm a recovering sort of technology leader. I, I think I, I do as, as a person and personally trust technology to make our lives better. And yet, I think as we you know, see in, in, in life, um, I, I was part of a company, Symbian, that created the first operating system for what we thought at the time was the world's first smartphone. It was a great device. And yet, sometimes I feel, Shawani, like in some ways, they are fantastically wonderful devices. And yet, the, the right to repair legislation that, that um, is catching up to technology, as, as you mentioned, I think is probably the pendulum swung so far in, in the direction of entrusting technology companies with our collective futures. I think we're finally starting to appreciate the impact, this great you know, technological experiment upon our lives. And legislators are, are educating themselves. Attorneys general are, are doing a great job sort of leading the society with some great cases against tech. And, and just this is a part of a, a social movement that requires collective awareness and, and then dialogue. And it's not, you know, there's no silver bullet. We're not going to be able to point to you know, GDPR or the EU or California to, to say that's the perfect way forward. It's it's what makes sense for our communities at different levels, local, state, national, global. And and I think this dialogue is going to you know be one of the foundational dialogues of, of our lifetimes. Kayla, what do you think about this? Are you sort of a vanguard of tech that you want the right to have the best tech available to you if, if you wanted to purchase it? Or, or are you sort of what do you think? Are you on the, the side of right to repair? Like, do you want to be able to repair your devices? Are you a tinker, a maker? I'm kind of still deciding my stance because I think obviously people do want the best option, the best products out there, but certain issues arise. And I'm starting to wonder, like for certain industries and certain products, there's risks beyond just incorrect repair, right? For example, like we were talking about before, if a car needs a new tire, even if that's done incorrectly, the user would theoretically find that out pretty quickly and come back or go elsewhere to have that corrected. But once we start to discuss tech products like we are now, higher level issues like hacking or identity theft or cyber stalking could sneak in there. Do you think there's any way to maintain the trust that we were talking about with the company and like avoid these issues while still having the benefits of right to repair? Um, like, where do you think that's heading? Kayla, yes, like a thousand percent. So 
I, I've written about this. I, I I love this issue. I think you just hit on one of the the, the dominating dimensions of competition between tech companies. And, and I, I hate to keep coming back to sort of, you know, the, the big four or five, Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple. But, you know, at least in our market context, those are where the conversations are happening. Apple and their products are worse. They are less predictive because they don't collect, harvest, leverage, monetize the data that an Amazon uh, or a Facebook or a Google does. And so Siri is kind of dumb. I mean, I love Siri, but she's, she's kind of dumb. Hey, that's not nice. <laughs> um, compared to, to Alexa and some others. So the classic quote is, if you're um, not paying for something, you are the product. Facebook harvests just a tremendous amount of data. Amazon, the same. Google, oh my gosh. You know, they, they've been at the forefront of privacy, but but I think here recently, some of their, their underlining um, algorithms and processes on, on privacy have changed so that, you know, even some of my, my IT professionals have, have stopped using Chrome just because the, 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 the data that flows from Chrome to Google is, is not something they're comfortable with. But, but Apple, I think, you know, yes, they collect data for sure. But, you know, to your point, I think Apple has been playing a long game here, five years, starting this conversation about differentiating their brand based on protecting your privacy and anonymity. They've sacrificed product development and smart products to stake out a claim to, we are the ones that protect your privacy. Now, Kayla, here's the thing. They're also terrible to repair. And they have so much control over the ecosystem, what gets allowed into the app store, that they are an argued monopoly, right? And so, Kayla, you do have more... I think data incursions, more concerns with privacy with an open source ecosystem like Android or, or Microsoft or PC, but that's the pros and the cons associated with control. If you trust Apple in their brand and what they've been telling us for five years, that they're going to protect our privacy, then that's where you're going to place your bet. If privacy is your buying criteria, that's probably a pretty good bet based on the track record of, of Apple. If you open it up a little bit, then what, uh, what what are you willing to give away in terms of sleep insurance that your privacy is going to be maintained? The last thing I'll say here, I just heard a fantastic fact. If PCs have 95% of the market share, it's pretty attractive to target PCs as a hacker. Because I, I can go and, and I, I worked with the intelligence community and, and interviewed a few folks, um, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And they said, you know, when Apple gets above 20% market share, then it's going to make it more appealing to hackers to target Apple ecosystems. Um, and so they keep the price pretty high to maintain their market share so that the target is not as big on them as it is for for PCs, it's just easier to hack a, a a PC system, and so they you know inflated the price to keep market share down, to keep the value of potentially hacking an Apple ecosystem down, and also they've invested in systems that are ridiculously controlled. It's obscene how paranoid they are about controlling their systems. It doesn't make it great for us who want to have a right to repair, but they do or deliver customize. or customize, but they do deliver on generally their promise to protect privacy. I'm not always happy about it, but that's sort of the devil's bargain. This kind of brings me to something we haven't really talked about, which is sustainability and environmentalism. 
one of the benefits of the right to repair is it's better for the environment. If you are constantly making new things that aren't getting recycled, that are just kind of being thrown away, that has a negative impact. What do you all think about the interplay of the right to repair and sustainability? Well, that's a good segue, I think, into our subtopic, which is planned obsolescence. In France, they just passed a law which uh, makes it a crime to purposefully create products that are basically going to break in three years. It's, it's, a, it's an offense punishable by two years imprisonment or 300,000 euros. Uh, so, so they're taking it way more seriously than they are here. Meanwhile, we have to deal with products that are made out of plastic um, <laughs> that just, you know, you drop it one time or glass now, right? So now we have, I always thought that was nice. It looks nice to have a glass screen, but practically something that you touch 95% of the time probably shouldn't be made out of glass. Um, they probably, this was probably part of the master plan. They want you to break your product and then they want to not give you the tools to fix it so that you have to buy the new product because you're so hooked on it. Yeah. So from a business strategy standpoint, they stand to make a lot. I I mean, absolutely. And yet, they're, they're not making devices that, you know, uh, are designed to, to break. Um, you know, they, they do want pretty durable devices. Um, this is why they do the, the drop tests The they advertise on it. You know, it's shatterproof, it's shatter resistant. Here's, here's their most recent screens. They're not shatter resistant or they're not shatterproof clearly. Um, but, but they, I mean, they, they invest in, in this technology, but I think the underlying argument here is, is probably pretty accurate. And, and we know as much because the designed flaws in the battery programming uh, from Apple from a couple years ago. They totally got busted that they were purposefully throttling battery life um, just with software. And, uh, and, and whether they got caught, I mean, it feels like a Volkswagen, like emission standard scandal, uh, but Apple got caught, you know, um, you know, throttling battery life. Uh, and then it was a class action and there was, uh, you know, repair, you, you brought your phones in to, to get new batteries. So the dominant business model innovation, I would say over the last five to 10 years has been this idea of recurring revenue. Why do we see more subscription services? Because it's planned recurring revenue you opt in and then it's harder to opt out. And device manufacturers have probably done that in a physical space with physical devices, probably let's just say better than uh, other companies. But I, I think it's a it's a balance, right? We, we don't buy cars expecting them to wear out in two or three years. There is some expectation that um, they have a life and they can be repaired and maintained, but also the maintenance costs associated with cars are are something that we have been socialized into to understanding. When you think about maintenance costs for phones, we don't have those same maintenance costs. They, the design criteria for these devices are just exceptional. They, they are quite amazing. I always say the phone is the only device other than your mattress that you spend more time with every day. And, and so you're investing in a device that you expect it to do pretty amazing shit. Um, and, and it delivers 
pretty exceptionally because the companies have wedded, you know, software with hardware very, very well. Yes, there's planned obsolescence. Yes, there's degradation of service and functionality over time. Yes, we sort of come to expect that. Yes, we are trained into buying new devices every, you know, several years because we have also been socialized into expecting the best. Um, and yes, these screens break. Yes, they can be prepared. Yes, it's a pain in the ass to do it. And, and it's all part of this very narrowly curated business model and relationship between the customer and the company that has sort of become entrenched in our collective mentality. And yeah, we could probably shake it up with some regulation and legislation, but um, I think you'd probably have some folks who are pretty upset on both sides, consumers and companies. Kayla, uh, what do you think? Have you ever broken a screen before? Yeah, I have. And that's kind of what I wanted to get into next. I feel like from a sustainability standpoint, a lot of the movement has kind of come from the consumer side, right? Like consumers demanding that companies are taking these initiatives, maybe recycling plastic products and just reinventing new ways to make their products. And I'm wondering why a lot of that has been geared towards maybe plastic recycling and stuff like that, and maybe not towards extending the life of the products necessarily. Do you think that right to repair just is something that needs to be put out there more and it's an education problem? Or why do you think that right to repair isn't as widely pushed for in legislation by different groups? I, you know, I, I do think it's an education problem. The The incentives probably aren't aligned for the companies to invest in sort of raising awareness about right to repair. If the business model doesn't support it, they're they're not totally interested. And yet, I don't think they've totally shirked. I mean, there there's I fix it, I tear down. They do tear downs of all products and, and rate them. They're quite good. The people that pay attention to them are, are probably pretty niche and that's fine. But I think to your point, E-waste is one of the, the biggest and most growing challenges with, you know, some scarcity and supply chain challenges with rare earth metals and where these things come from and the, the social and political challenges with where we source these rare earth metals and, and frankly, our dependency on some of these supply chains, you know, going back to marginalized communities in these places. So I am profoundly aware and sensitive to the, the sustainability issues, not only environmental, but also sociologically. We have to, as a society, be aware of the back-end supply chain, where our stuff and our products come from. I would say the trend over 20, 25 years, starting with sort of Nike and sweatshop labor in the 80s and 90s, has been a growing awareness. You know, we're probably not where we need to be. And yet, I think, Kayla, to your point, you know, the environmental impacts of these devices, plastic, like I said, the rare earth metals, mercury, you know, I, I think is increasing and the systems to reuse these components are also improving. It's not just dumping a whole bunch of stuff in a third world country, a developing nation, and expect, you know, the poorest of the poor to disassemble these things with their bare hands. That's not where we are today. We were there, you know, a number of years ago. And, and that's just, you know, a, a situation that nobody can agree it is just and, and equitable. So I think, you know, to whom much power has been given, much is expected. And these companies do bear the responsibility for sort of taking a stand on some of these things, leading on some of these things. But governments also sort of bear the responsibility of, of looking themselves in the mirror and saying, yeah, I got to do the hard work of educating myself. And then right then leading the public to be more aware of these things. Um, to 
increased demand for uh, programs that, you know, uh, reduce, reuse, and recycle, I guess. AirPods do not grow on trees, right? <laughs> <laughs> the little batteries in these things, I mean, these are the worst. They last a while, but, um, yeah, you definitely can't repair them. Um, <laughs> well, that is a great way to end this segment. We very much appreciate you, Dr. Mitchell, for this discussion. I feel like this could be like a three-part series. But yeah, there's just so much to discuss here, right? It's very complex, very interesting. The only thing better than the conversation was the company, my friends. Like, uh, <laughs> you guys, uh, I mean, you're, we've entrusted the future of our world to you. I, I'm generally a trusting kind of guy, but you guys inspire me asking these questions because they're important. Uh, you know, putting it out there into the public conversation because that's the only way we're, we're going to engage in, in civil dialogue to, to come to some solutions. And there's never an answer. There's just a journey. Um, that's why we're pilgrims, right? We've got to uh, enjoy the journey along the way and, and make the world a better place along the journey and, and hope that the destination for folks that come after us is just a little bit better. So thanks for doing that. Thank you, Dr. Mitchell. It was great to talk to you. Yeah, oh it's gosh. great to talk to you. Thank you. You guys are awesome. Really appreciate it. I'll be looking in my Apple podcast for uh, the subscribe button. Click in the link below. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Take care, guys. Cheers. Our next guest on Big Tech, Big Law, the Right to Repair episode, is here to discuss the legal remedies available to consumers who are facing these challenges. Uh, so, yeah, let's go right into it. I guess appreciate CJ for having me. Always happy to help. Always happy to have these great discussions for very important and monumental topics that probably the average internet user does not know about. To introduce myself, my name is Edward Foltz. I'm an associate in Reed Smith in the DC office. My practice is heavily focused on intellectual property, data privacy, and sports and entertainment media. So within that, the right to repair comes involved with all those areas. I did write an article about the FTC recently adopted the right to repair to reduce these restrictions that you mentioned on your last discussion. In May of 2021, the FTC published a report about anti-competitive repair restrictions in the United States. The report examined how the FTC could expand consumer repair options. And in early July, President Biden signed an executive order to urge the FTC to start enforcing the existing law. So the biggest thing about the right to repair is it's already a law. It was never enforced to the ability is now. So it's an existing law already enacted, already ratified, it just wasn't enforced. No one was held accountable, nobody was being fined, no one was getting violated. When I say no one, meaning companies, manufacturers who were violating the right to repair law were not being accountable for the action. So they kept doing it over and over and over again. So finally the FTC said, along with President Biden said enough is enough. We're gonna start enforcing these already existing laws and restrictions. Yeah, let's let's get into that. What do you mean the laws already existed? A lot of consumers are not aware of what their rights are and you're saying that there's a law on the books already that tells manufacturers, well, you gotta be better about some of these devices that you're creating. Because one of the main issues right now, I guess uh, the best product example right now would be like an, an Apple iPhone, right? Um, if you wanna fix the screen, everyone drops their phone and the screen cracks and made out of glass. You can't really do that at home. It's not like changing the tire on your car. But you're saying here we have laws that already are on the books. Well, what laws are you referring to? 
Yes, so it's called the Magnuson Moss Warranty Act, so MMWA. So in that act, but it contains an anti-time anti provision, section 102C, that prohibits a warrantor from conditioning his warranty on the consumers using any article of service identified by brand name, unless the article of service provided for free or the warrantor obtains a waiver from the FTC. In English, this means that if there's some type of repair needed on an item or on a product, the user slash consumer has to give it back to the man first to repair it. That's the right of repair. But unfortunately, and now you mentioned Apple, Apple is one of the main companies, but other companies as well, but we can use Apple for the sake of argument. They try and monopolize the industry in regards to repair. So if you ever need a repair condition in regards to Apple, you have to go through them. You can't go through a third party. But if you do go through a third party, the warranty in Apple's before this right to repair provision got passed in July, it was that you broke the warranty with Apple. So now if you want to repair it, you can't go to Apple no more. You gotta go to these mom and pop shops, third party vendors who mostly they say, you know, screen repair, battery repair. And most of them are, you know, certified. Yeah, Ed, can you go back? Let's talk about anti-tying. Can you explain what that is? What what does it mean to include an anti-tying provision in a law? Anti-tying, it just means a provision that's prohibited. You prohibit anti-competitive practices which require certain warranters and manufacturers to get along and not get along. And so anti-tying is just a legal term that shows what, what you cannot do, what you prohibit. And what's prohibited here is a company like Apple saying to a consumer, you absolutely have to use our repair service and pay us to repair your device or else we will not honor the warranty. And the MMWA is saying, if you want to force consumers to use you to repair their device, you have to offer the repair for free. So Ed, can you tell us what can the FTC do ultimately to protect consumers and consumer rights in regards to the right to repair? Yeah, so the FTC stands for the Federal Trade Commission. They protect consumers and competition by preventing anti-competitive monopoly sort of industries, deceptive and unfair business practices through different avenues, either through law enforcement, through advocacy, through education, without trying to do undue burdens on legitimate business activity. And so it's like the enforcer to make sure that businesses are not being deceptive or unfair to consumers slash you users and that businesses do not create monopolies to give other businesses unfair advantage in their business practices. So that's the authority of the FTC. And with the Biden administration pressuring the Federal Trade Commission to enforce the anti-tying provisions of the Magnuson-Moss Warranty Act, we can likely expect future litigation against companies who violate the right to repair for consumers, and hopefully that will help the movement gain significant traction. Uh, We might even see some different types of product design in future products because of these uh, legal developments. Maybe it won't be so hard to fix a cracked screen on your phone from now on, thanks to this. So I guess we'll all keep an eye out to see what changes. Sounds good. Well, I wanna thank Edward Fultz, an associate at Reed Smith for coming on to talk about the legal aspect of right to repair 
Uh, thank you to Dr. Matthew Mitchell for coming on to discuss the business side of things and to our co-hosts, uh, Shawani Johnson and Kayla Lawless. So that's our Right to Repair episode. Look out for our next episode on Big Tech, Big Law.